0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Syria Security Seminar. Uh, it's my great pleasure to introduce today uh, Paul Thompson and. Uh, um- it's very interesting because uh, uh, Paul has a background that many people will not expect in information retrieval. So I think that his talk is going to be very interesting because he can tell you some of some of uh, these techniques can be applied in the context of security. Um, so uh, Paul received his PhD from uh, University of California at Berkeley. And he's currently a research professor at uh, Dartmouth. And he was previously associated with Drexel University and also uh, with West Publishing uh, Company. So it's- My great pleasure to have you. Today I'm going to talk about uh, semantic attacks and uh, security. And I'll go into some of the the research background for this project, which uh, uh, began uh, four and a half years ago at the Institute for Security Technology Studies at Dartmouth College. And uh, the project, in a formal sense, ended uh, about two years ago, but as I'll go into in some of this talk, uh, there are various threads of it that are uh, being continued. Um, uh, I'll talk about uh, the relation of this project to uh, detecting deception or counter-deception and look at uh, an example of a prototype that we built towards the end of this project looking at detecting misinformation in news stories, and then moving ahead to some of the more uh, future um, directions this work uh, may take. Uh, about a uh, little over a year ago, I was involved with a workshop uh, at the Air Force Research Lab where they were looking at uh, uh, a, a new program uh, of research in called the Commander's Predictive Environment. and. Uh, In particular, um, we were interested there in looking at deception detection again. And then uh, just last summer, I took part in a National Science Foundation workshop uh, where uh, the workshop was focused on uh, detecting deception in language. And this also turned out to be part of a broader series of workshops of looking at um, uh, overall security evaluations where they're concerned with um, background investigations, um, interviews, and interrogations, and it was anticipated there will be more funding uh, in this area as well. So much of the work on uh, deception detection has been, been done by uh, psychologists or communications uh, researchers, and uh, in particular, the uh, Air Force has funded work by uh, Burgoon and other psychologists um, at, at the University of Arizona. And, Initially, this work uh, was looking at uh, det- detecting deception and face-to-face communication. But gradually, over the years, it sort of evolved into looking at uh, detecting deception in computer-mediated communication. And then it started to overlap with the uh, uh, semantic uh, attacks or semantic hacking project that I was working on. Um, so for example, one of the things that some of the communication theorists uh, claim is that just in everyday face-to-face conversation among people? Uh, you know, over fifty percent of this communication is in some way deceptive, you know, de- de- to varying degrees. Uh, so one of the uh, issues here is identification of linguistic cues of deception. So say you're looking at computer-mediated communication. What kind of uh, you know cues in the the text could you pick up which is indicative of uh, deception? Uh, and uh, this has also sometimes been called linguistic forensics, and an example of this would be um, authorship attribution uh, based on statistical analysis of writers' styles. And some of this work goes back quite a few years, uh, the statisticians, uh, Mosteller and Wallace back in the 1960s did work on attributing the uh, authorship of the Federalist Papers written before the U.S. Constitution was adopted. Uh, Some were by known authors but others, they weren't sure if it was Madison or Hamilton had written various of them. Um, So, uh, there there are also other government programs, such as uh, the Acquaint Program, Advanced Question Answering for Intelligence, where uh, deception detection might also play a role. And in some of the sort of long-range planning for that program, they talked about uh, uh, the problem of detecting contradiction in various, you know, text on the same topic is, as, as, uh, you know, something that you would need in order to, um, you know, do question answering properly. Another uh, government program was uh, NIMDI or Novel uh, Intelligence and Massive Data, where I'll talk a little bit uh, later in this talk about an example uh, related to intelligence analysis with uh, deception detection. Um, and another area of research is uh, deception among autonomous agents. And uh, as I'll go into a little more uh, shortly, uh, there was a, a report um, by Martin Lubicki written in 1994, which first developed the taxonomy of uh, talking about computer security incidents or attacks as being physical, syntactic, or semantic. And he was largely concerned with the problem of autonomous agents, say a sensor network system in the battlefield that was being fed misinformation by an adversary. Um, also, uh, Professor uh, Eugene Santos, who recently came to Dartmouth from the University of Connecticut, has similarly been involved in research on autonomous agents and deception detection. Uh, in, in related areas, um, uh, in um, you know some natural language processing uh, in text, there's been a recent interest in detecting sentiment or Emotion or affect in in text. Um, other researchers have been looking at detecting emotion in speech, or uh, there are some current uh, homeland security uh, border initiative uh, border uh, security initiatives. They're looking at video or trying to fuse uh, information from both audio and video sources. Say like at a customs agent or something like that. That you could um, you know through uh, s- surveillance you know provide the agent some real time. Indications that maybe there is some deception based on audio or radio uh, analysis, and as I mentioned, with the security um, uh, uh, evaluations program, one of the parties that's interested in that is the Defense Polygraph Institute. So, as um, some of the traditional physiological detection of, of um, you know deception and you know like a, a, you know lie detectors has been called into question by some you know studies. You know they're interested in trying to move beyond that, or to look at situations, say, um, you know, interrogations in a battle uh, uh, setting where you can't, you know, strap on all the equipment or something like that. Um, so th- the particular project that I'm mostly focusing on was called the semantic hacking project. Um, and um, this was work that I was involved with at the Institute for Security Technology Studies at Dartmouth College uh, from 2001 through 2003. Uh, other people working on the project included uh, Professor George Sabenko and his doctoral student Anarita Gianni. Um, this work was funded by the National Institute of Justice, and um, unlike the earlier work I mentioned by Lubicki, which was more you know concerned with battle sort of settings. Our focus was on computer security. So as I m- mentioned in his report, The Mesh and the Net, uh, Speculations on Armed Conflict in an the Age of Free Silicon, uh, Lubicki divided attacks into these uh, types of uh, physical, syntactic and semantic. And because we were more concerned with, uh, you know, say uh, something like uh, user, an end user on the web. Uh, being misled by misinformation, we started calling what we were doing cognitive hacking or cognitive attacks instead of semantic. And partly the motivation for that was that people in computer science theory, you know, were you know talking about uh, the semantics of a computer system and you know violations of that semantics, and we didn't want to confuse what we were doing with that. So uh, many of our papers talk about cognitive hacking or co- cognitive attacks. But in a broader sense. Um, you can look at this as really perception management. And so this has been around for a long time, I mean, you know, thousands of years, not just uh, since computers. um, And I'll go a little bit into some of the traditional uh, definitions of computer security and how our definitions for semantic or cognitive hacking fit into those. So uh, Dorothy Denning wrote a book a few years ago on information warfare focused more on, you know, sort of economics uh, rather than, you know, military kind of information warfare, uh, you know, just general everyday society. And she described um, perception management as information operations that aim to affect the perceptions of others in order to influence their emotions, reasonings, decisions, and ultimately actions. So you can think of this as being a continuum of things from propaganda to psychological operations and warfare. To advertising or even education, you know, at a more benevolent range of the continuum. And so, these are just some related concepts, of, you know, from propaganda through advertising. You hear a lot about social engineering, and the first time we talked about this at a conference, people said, oh, "Well, isn't this just social engineering that you're talking about?" So we tried to come up with this example, saying that yes, there's some overlap, but really we're looking at something slightly different at least. So. Often in social engineering, somebody is trying to trick you into giving you a password or social security number or, you know, for identity theft or just logging on to a computer system under your identity. And also, you know, you know, people have done studies where they offer a free ballpoint pen in exchange for the password or something like that, and you know, the people often comply with that. But what we're more interested in is not just you know, tricking somebody to get the password, but rather something where the computer system itself is used as an instrument of conveying that message to get the user to take some action. And I'll go into more detail about a typical example we looked at, which was a pump and dump scheme. And this is a, a scheme where someone's trying to manipulate the price of a company's stock, say, by posting misleading uh, uh, postings in a discussion group on the web. And uh, as a result of that, people buy or sell a stock, and the person you know, perpetrating the fraud can uh, make a profit on that. Um, And, and so this is just uh, sort of graphically representing Lubicki's sort of taxonomy, of physical attacks something just literally destroying the hardware, versus syma- syntactic attacks, which you can think of as most of the sort of traditional areas of computer security, you know, the things like viruses and worms and, uh, you know, denial of service and so on. And <clears throat> semantic attacks, on the other hand, being things more like misinformation or maybe website dispa- defacement, spoofing, and so on. And another related area is information warfare or information operations in a military setting. So, uh, one very uh, traditional um, definition in computer security that was uh, stated in this 1981 paper by Carl Landwehr is information contained in an automated system must be protected from three kinds of threats the unauthorized disclosure of information. The unauthorized modification of information and the unauthorized withholding of information, um, also sometimes called confidentiality, integrity, and accessibility, um, and it, these. Def, this definition originally came out in the context of um, uh, uh, sort of multiple classification level message handling systems, and uh, you know in today's sort of web environment, e-commerce, and so on. In a lot of ways, and many of the examples we'll talk about here, you know, they don't really violate any of these, uh, you know, sort of three threats. So, you know, things have uh, changed in some ways in terms of what we would consider uh, sort of semantic, uh, you know, kind of attacks. So, uh, the definition we ultimately came up with in this project for cognitive or semantic hacking was a networked information system attack that relies on changing human users' perceptions and corresponding behaviors in order to be successful. Uh, so unlike much of social engineering, it requires uh, the use of the information system itself to convey the attack, not just something that you take advantage of once you've done the social engineering to access the system. And it also requires a user to change behavior, which you know, isn't necessarily true for worms and viruses and so on. And all of this is exploiting our growing reliance on, you know, being increasingly networked with various information sources. So, as a concrete example of this kind of pump and dump scheme, I mentioned in November '99, uh, two UCLA graduate students and uh, one other uh, collaborator purchased nearly all of the shares of the, a bankrupt company, NEI Web World, and then they um, posted many. Um, you know messages in an internet message board to try to pump up the value of the stock and they also pretended to be a company interested in acquiring this um, uh, bankrupt company and as a result of this, in one day the value of the stock increased from thirteen cents a share to fifteen dollars a share, and they you know quickly made three hundred sixty four thousand um, dollars, but they were caught, and in december ninety uh, nine they were charged by the SEC and you know later sentenced to some time in jail, and they had to give up all their profits. another very well known case involved a uh, 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 um, teenager uh, middle school i believe student in New Jersey, uh, Jonathan Lutt, who um, uh, did similar manipulations um, but and and you know each time made large profits but um, one of the interesting things about this case was even though the SEC was very interested in prosecuting him, you know, they eventually settled out of court and he was allowed to keep about five hundred thousandths of his, uh, you know, earnings because it was very gray area of the law. So in some way, um, you know, I mean, he could say that what he was doing wasn't that different from, you know, some kind of, uh, pr- you know, stock, you know, professional that's just giving advice on the internet, you know, despite the fact that he was, you know, thirteen or fourteen years old at the time he started doing it. But uh, and you know it's maybe this you know fonts a little too small to sit to read, but you know an example of the kind of thing he'd post is, you know, like the FTEC is uh, FTEC is starting to break out. Next week this thing will explode. Currently it's training for just two and a half. I'm expecting to see twenty very soon. Let me explain why, and so on and so on. And so this is actually fairly mild writing style compared to some of these I've seen. But um, in in any case um, you know, interestingly, I mean, the New York uh, Times Magazine and various other, you know, there's a book that was sort of half about this. There's been a lot written about this, and, you know, it turns out that not only were his classmates, but even some of the teachers at his school were all getting in on this when he was doing these kind of things. So it was sort of an interesting case. Uh, another example was Emulex uh, where um, Mark J- Jacob had shorted s- these shares in Emulex, but the stock rose, and so he lost money. And so... Uh, he, I guess, had formerly worked at this um, uh, Internet Wire and he still had an account there. He sent out a false r- press release claiming that this corporation was being investigated by the SEC, being forced to restate 1998 um, 99 earnings, and as a result, this manipulation made $236,000. Um, so um, there. Is uh, sort of economic perspective to uh, these kind of manipulations, um, and um, you know you can uh, you know tie this into um, work and software agents or even economics work on theory of the firm, um, and so one of the things we were look- looking at was value of information. Um, so in one of these, you know, imagine you're a day trader and you you see one of these news postings. And if this is valid, you know, sort of true, reliable information, you know it's very important to act on it the second you see it and make a huge profit. But if somebody's manipulating your perception, you know, you could lose everything by that quick action. So what we were trying to come up with were countermeasures that you know someone in this situation might be able to you know very quickly get some sense uh, to whether this information was reliable or not, you know, before acting. but on the other hand, the longer you delay. You know, the longer it takes to, you know, confirm that information, you know, the more you potentially, you know, the less your profit would be. Um, so, just as in the the battle space that Lubicki talked about, um, as you know, systems are becoming more and more automated, and you know, you're relying on information from various sensor networks and so on. You know, just in the modern firm, uh, you know, there, there's more and more automation and. Um, uh, you know, it's much easier to m- manipulate that uh, information flow through misinformation. Um, and one example, this was uh, an exercise that uh, Dartmouth and uh, some other um, uh, agencies were involved with called uh, Liveware, LiveWire, where um, there was a-, a simulated attack by an adversary on the U.S. economy as a kind of cyber uh, warfare where you assume the adversary has – um, you know, several years and more or less unlimited resources to plan a 30-day attack against the U.S. economy by um, you know, at, you know, sort of lowering the confidence in our financial uh, infrastructure. And so they simulated networks of various federal, state, and local uh, organizations, some uh, 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 network companies and financial institutions, and sort of played out this scenario or exercise. Uh, and saw how people reacted um, so in sort of traditional economic theory there 's the assumption that you know that all the players have this perfect costless information, but you know in reality it 's not like that I mean information isn 't perfect there's a cost associated with information flow uh, at the same and so this is sort of this uh, e- theory of the firm which you know people were writing back in the 1920s but um, with as I was saying, as you know, things are becoming more and more automated in firms. Uh, you know, the, this overheads being reduced, and the information can flow more readily. But at the same time, these systems are more vulnerable to these uh, potentially to these semantic attacks. So, uh, one of the things we looked at uh, was uh, based on uh, uh, this um, uh, horse race example from. Uh, 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 this information theory book. So you assume there are uh, two horses in a race. Uh, could be in horses, but you know, here we're just talking about two. So you have a cognitive hacker, or you know, who wants to lure an indecisive gambler or investor, say in one of these pump and dump schemes, to invest money on false prospects. So we were trying to show how, by manipulating the person's perception. Uh, the, you know, what was sort of the most uh, profitable way the semantic attacker could make this attack. So first the attacker has to convince the investor that, you know, it's worth taking part in this game and then manipulate the person to invest in a certain way. Um, and so this is from Cover and Thomas's Elements of Information Theory. There are in horses in a race. Each horse I is assigned a probability PI of winning the race. Uh, and each horse I is assigned an odd signifying the gambler would bet B.I. dollars on the horse I and win B.I. times O.I. dollars in case of victory or suffer suffer total loss in case of defeat. So W is defined as the doubling rate function where after K plays, the expected value of the gambler's assets assets are 2 to the W.K. And so we just did some sort of simulations showing, okay, for sort of one unit of effort of manipulation of perception, you know, where do you get the biggest payoff in terms of Manipulating uh, uh, the perception of the the victim. So, applying this to the emulex example that we just talked about, um, uh, you know, sort of the two types of manipulations that, that Jacobs could have done were, on the one hand, to say something misleadingly positive about the company, like a successful new product release is imminent, or you know, something misleadingly negative. In this case, the company is under investigation and so on. And of course, it was the second that Jacobs took. So uh, the next thing we did after sort of coming up with a lot of examples like this and sort of classifying them as different types of, uh, you know, semantic attacks or cognitive attacks is we began to think of what possible countermeasures there could be to these attacks. and. We divided these into two general categories of countermeasures, those where there's just a single source of information uh, so you can't compare uh, you know this misleading or possibly misreliable information to other sources of information so there you have to worry about authenticating the source. Uh, we also talked about uh, something called information trajectory modeling or uh, ULAM games and I can come back to this if any of you are interested, but maybe in the interest of time I'll sort of skip over these for now. And then another type of situation is where there are multiple sources of information. So you could try to look at techniques such as, um, uh, you know, the, uh, the reliability of this source or, you know, do collaborative filtering or recommender system type of technology to compare what, um, you know, other people say about this source or what other sources are saying about this information. Uh, we didn't develop it. We were looking at uh, Byzantine generals type models. Um, uh, we also uh, considered things like uh, collusion of information sources. So, you know, in general, if you have multiple accounts of the same event happening, you know, typically they're not all going to agree exactly with each other. Um, but if you did see maybe, you know, almost identical agreement, on the one hand, maybe that's just because all these sources all got their information from the same original source. But it may be that they're conspiring with each other, and you know, collusion's going on. And um, the other sort of techniques we're looking at are linguistic analysis, which I'll say a little bit more about. <clears throat> so, uh, going back to some of the earlier measures, authentication of source would just involve due diligence in identifying the information source, and ascertaining its reliability, uh, looking at you know, sort of traditional computer security kinds of things like certification. Uh, public key infrastructure sort of technology and and so on, or over time being able to build up rating and reputation systems such as, say, eBay uses to help establish trust in a particular source of information. The idea behind the information trajectory modeling was, um, you know, maybe you could build a statistical model of how you expect the data to look, like – and a good example, I think, of this is in weather forecasting. where. On the one hand, you have all this historical data, maybe going back a hundred years, and you know more recent uh, weather of you know just the last day or so, and you know you, you know they use supercomputers to build sort of elaborate models of this to try to predict the next day's weather, and similarly, you know financial analysts try to predict you know movement of stock prices. So, um, especially in these pump and dump schemes, often they're manipulating very low cap uh, stock price, and you know it, you, you could imagine it may be possible you know, to build a model where if you see some real huge deviations from what's expected, you know, at least it's uh, indication that maybe something is amiss, some kind of manipulation is going on. And, you know, possibly something like this running in the background could alert people to something like these uh, sort of pump-and-dump scheme manipulations. And, you know, this was just uh, what I have already talked about in terms of the collusion and so on. Uh, and in, similarly with collaborative uh, filtering or li- reliability, you il- elicit feedback from users to try to get uh, an idea of the reliability of an information source like something like ebay um, but uh you know there some of these are fairly easy to overcome though so uh, per- and there' have been examples of this like on eBay, where people have built up a reputation as being a good you know trustworthy trader by engaging in you know, a fair number of relatively small transactions and suddenly just pull off a big, you know, major uh, fraudulent transaction. And this model we didn't really develop, but, uh, you know, I could say there's a message communication system with reliable and unreliable processes. These are the generals. The generals are plotting a coup. The reliable generals intend to complete the coup. The unreliable will betray the coup. So, you know, we thought we could apply this to some kind of, uh, say, an e-commerce broker evaluating the reliability of sites before committing to a transaction. And uh, this collusion of information sources we've already talked about. So because of some of my own background, as as Christina mentioned, I've worked in uh, information retrieval, but also in uh, information extraction or natural language understanding. So I was sort of immediately gravitated to some of these uh, more linguistic cases. So I mentioned uh, the authorship attribution. And there was some interesting work a few years ago by researchers at IBM Watson Research where they tried to use uh, some statistical analysis to do, um, well, looking at a situation where you have some anonymous postings in a web discussion group. And uh, so you have a, a pool of candidate authors. And they were trying to look at how small an amount of text you would need to determine with a given threshold of uh, certainty that a certain piece of text was written by a certain author. And they found it was required surprisingly little text to make a fairly accurate uh, uh, conclusion on that. And in part, this is because on the web, text is much more idiosyncratic. With something like the Federalist Papers or other uh, published work that's gone through an editorial process, some of that uh, you know, individual style of the individual author has been removed or smoothed over. And uh, so it's much easier to you know, pick this out and just sort of general web uh, sort of text. And there's been some cr- uh, very recent research along these lines that uh, may still be going on. There's a NSF-CIA knowledge discovery dissemination program where Madigan and others at Rutgers at DIMAX were Looking at this authorship attribution problem, and there was a uh, related projects funded by the same program at um, USCISI I believe um, but another area that I 've also considered and i haven 't done any work in this area yet, but automatic genre detection is there something about this misleading text you know say of you know the Jonathan Lett sort of text that you could pick out uh, and differentiate it from you know, just the typical exaggerated, you know, day trader kinds of postings, um, and there, there was work ten years or so ago by Schutzen Nunberg Nunnberg at uh, Xerox Park looking at uh, automatic genre detection, for example. And I've talked to, with researchers at Park more recently that you know they've told me that you know things on the web have gotten you know sort of much less you know, crisp, more of a mishmash. They said. And you know, so they're not really calling it genre detection anymore, but they're doing something like they call a sort of authority analysis or uh, some such. But in any case, um you know, here you're not looking for the style of a uh, individual author to identify the author, but rather just maybe there's something in this uh deliberately deceptive writing that you can pick up uh, that would distinguish it from uh you know, just More general enthusiastic reporting about something, but it's not being deliberately deceptive. So, uh, towards the end of this project, we came up with uh, a prototype, uh, and we're interested in uh, uh, developing this uh, countermeasure for misinforming news. So, we assume that there's an end user who finds a possibly misinforming news item or discussion group posting. Uh, You know, and again, this is sort of a pump and dump scheme kind of thing where. If this is reliable information, the user could make a huge profit, but otherwise might lose everything. So we allow the user, in this case, to automatically generate a query from the text of the item, and we submit it to the Google News API, which then you know, issues a query and comes back with you know maybe a few hundred or a few thousand uh, you know, textually similar news items. So we consider two different countermeasures, uh, and one uh, we call the news verifier. So the idea with this uh, uh, prototype was that stories would be optimally re-ranked and presented to the user. So Google comes back with some ranking of the news stories, but this is a ranking based on whatever algorithm that Google is using, but it's not a ranking designed for the purpose of detecting misinformation in the original story. So. Um, so, in any case, if you could come up with an optimal ranking of stories which would most likely assist the user in determining whether the original story was um, misinformation, uh, then you could sort of leave it up to the user. So, if you could, in your top, you know, few, you know, two or three ranks of the re-ranking, uh, you know, assist the user in that way, then you know, this countermeasure could succeed. If, on the other hand, you know, in your several hundred returned items, you know, the ones which would really be most useful for the user were back there in ranks, you know, 110 or something like that. User's never going to see them likely. So that, that was the first countermeasure. The second countermeasure, which we didn't get to implement because funding ran out at that point, was, uh, starts the same way. So you, you send off the query to the Google News API. It comes back with a collection of similar documents. But here the idea was to automatically analyze these rather than just showing a ranking to the user and um, use uh, something like the information trajectory model I described. And so in this approach, we would assume we have access to stock market price movements. We would be able to extract the ticker symbol from these news stories for the company and uh, see if the movement of the stock price looks like it's out of line, uh, implying that some manipulation was going on. So our experimental design was then to see whether, you know, the first countermeasure or the second measure would work better. And we got a set of data from University of Massachusetts Amherst, and there's a URL at the bottom if you're interested in this project, it was called e-analyst, or an electronic analyst of financial markets. And then this originally started as a student project in a, a class at UMass. And they uh, in, wanted to use it for um, you know, stock market uh, prediction. So they had a data set of news stories for about nine months, uh, around 2000, I think. And they, there were 121 publicly traded stocks that were mentioned in these news stories. There were ticker symbols in each story. And they had the uh, you know, stock market prices Uh, during the same time period for these 121 companies. And and this was from the Center for Intelligent Information Retrieval, UMass Amherst. Uh, And so they used a data mining algorithm, uh, something called activity monitoring that was used for cell fraud, uh, cell phone fraud detection uh, developed by Fossil and Provost, where they're monitoring the behavior of a large population of interesting events like cell phone fraud requiring some kind of action. And they were uh, applying this to you know this uh, sort of stock market prediction, and so they were able to look at this as a time series because they had the timestamps on the news articles and you know and the, and the stock market price and so on. And well, I guess going back here to this project for a minute. So, in my own uh, earlier research, I developed uh, an algorithm for probabilistic information retrieval that would be called like a meta search algorithm in you know today's sort of terminology. So. We implemented the Lucene open source uh, uh, search engine and the LEMUR uh, probabilistic language modeling approach to information retrieval system of CMU and uh, uh, UMass Amherst. And you'll know, combine those two. So we had this original set of documents returned by the Google News API, API, the Google ranking, the rankings of these other two search engines. We used my combination algorithm to get a combined ranking. And you could then you if the user was willing to take that long to do it, have the user provide relevance judgments for the first few documents looked at, and use those to up, you know, adjust the weights and do a, a re-ranking. You could also use this sort of machine learning algorithm to learn over time, and in this way, you could, you know, determine, you know, you, you could sort of, uh, I guess, your system could adapt to, uh, you know, produce rankings that were. Optimal for you know doing this disambiguation rather than just the sort of relevance-based you know for the purposes of document retrieval algorithms that presumably Google Lucene and Lemur use. Um, okay. So now broadening the scope of this work, uh, um, another area besides uh, you know these sort of pump and dump schemes, where uh, there's interest in this kind of uh, deception is in uh, the intelligence community. So there's this uh, idea of denial and deception. So for example, there's the Foreign Broadcast Information Service which collects news from around the world to support open source intelligence analysis. And you know, clearly misinformation could be planted in these stories intended to mislead analysts. And in more recent years, the FBIS is going beyond traditional sources of broadcast news and text and so on to collect more and more information from websites. And so, again, there's more chance for the sort of denial and deception and an interest in being able to detect this deception. Uh, then, starting in uh, 2003, uh, the National Science Foundation and the National Institute of Justice started a new uh, annual conference called the uh, Symposium on Intelligence and Security Informatics. And the rationale behind this was. You know, just as we talk about things like bioinformatics or medical informatics, they claim we need a new scientific discipline of intelligence and security informatics. And I've uh, been involved with this uh, conference and uh, only attended the first one, but uh, at the first one, uh, uh, you know, there were keynote speakers that were associated with the same program I mentioned earlier, the Knowledge Discovery and Dissemination. and. Uh, So with my background in document retrieval or information retrieval, it occurred to me that what would make this kind of informatics one of the key factors that makes this difference from traditional, say, legal or medical or scientific informatics is while you have occasional fraud in science and so on, for the most part you take information at face value. But clearly in intelligence and security informatics that wouldn't be the case. So you would be concerned with detecting deception and misinformation and so on. Uh, And uh, it also occurred to me, uh, some of my advisors in graduate school, besides working on probabilistic information retrieval, also developed models for utility theoretic retrieval. So instead of uh, trying to predict the probability that a given document will be relevant for a particular user based on the features of the user, their information needed in the documents, instead you try to predict the utility this document would have for this user and rank according to utility. And you know, I think that could also apply in these kind of situations. So um, it may not be, uh, you know, it maybe it's less important that this document is on this topic as being able to know whether it's misinformation or, you know, reliable information. And even if it's misinformation, if you can detect that, it's still useful to know that. It might be very have very high utility, in fact. Um, and then getting back to you know Lubecki's original concerns, uh, you know clearly there's a large role for all of this in uh, you know software agents and warfare, semantic tax, information operations, and so on. So a little over a year ago, I was involved with a workshop at the. Air Force Research Lab, uh, where they were planning a new program, which uh, some of the VAs are just starting to come out for now for the commander's predictive environment, and uh, we we're looking at uh, uh, detection deception in that uh, area, and more recently, I've uh, started working on a project at Dartmouth um, uh, called well or systems called adversarial intent inferencing. I guess the project's called adversarial reasoning. Um, And one of the issues that we're looking at is not just deception at sort of the uh, low level of an individual document or an individual face-to-face communication, uh, whether in text, audio, or video, but how does this all play potentially into a larger, more strategic deception? Um, So you think about things like in World War II when, you know, the allies are trying to conceal from the Germans that you know, D-Day invasion is going to take place at you know, Normandy. And so there are all kinds of elaborate things done to convince the Germans that it was going to take place somewhere else or a different time and so on. So we're interested in this idea of how can we achieve some kind of vertical integration between the low level deception you know, we may pick up and you know, sort of map that into a more strategic deception that may be going on. And uh, you know this is just you know still at sort of the speculative stage. We haven't actually begun doing this sort of work yet. So in one of these programs that I mentioned, there's been uh, this uh, novel intelligence and massive data program. Uh, uh, all of the participants in this program were uh, expected to read a book by uh, Richard Hoyer on. Uh, the psychology of intelligence analysis, where he develops a model called uh, analysis of competing hypotheses, where if you 're considering some hypothesis and you, know, you like say, maybe this is similar to the scientific method, so you consider all the possible hypotheses, you gather evidence on you know favor of the different hypotheses, weigh them, and you know come to your conclusion. Uh, Frank Steck at MITRE has developed a variant of this in a sort of prototype software system called. Uh, analysis of competing hypotheses counter deception. And um, uh, with Professor Santos at Dartmouth, uh, we're also developing a system uh, which we intend to apply to some of the same examples that Steck discussed, such as the Battle of Midway during World War II. So uh, Stack, in turn, based his theoretical approach on a number of other earlier investigators uh, so I mentioned Hoyer, uh, and so uh, other work um, in deception detection has been done by uh, Whaley and Busby, uh, more in the business sort of literature uh, and you know sort of uh, financial fraud, accounting fraud areas. Johnson and others have developed models, um, and in more uh, intelligence uh, work, uh, there's work by R. V. Jones. So. They're basically taking some of the theoretical background from all of these uh approaches and implementing them in a computer system for adversarial reasoning and deception detection and they have a project where they apply this to uh detecting deception in, uh within the you know say corporate financial filings but um there's a lot of controversy about some of this so you know, there was a, 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 some recent, fairly recent uh, uh, government study of uh, polygraphs, for example, which called into question, you know, just the the validity of, of the whole technique. Or, you know, people talk about detecting deception in video, but, you know, it, you know, it's unclear how accurate all of these really are. Um, and, um, well, I guess an issue in a lot of uh, uh, you know, sort of psychology sort of work is okay, you can produce something in the laboratory with, you know, freshman college students, but does this necessarily carry over into the r- real world, so to speak? Um, and then again, even if you're able to achieve this deception at, uh, detection at a lower level, then how do you integrate that with, you know, looking for more strategic sort of deception? So one of the things we hope to do here was uh, MITRE was developing a, a counterterrorism database uh, which was seeded with a deception uh, scenario, uh, and uh, one of the things we hoped to be able to do would be to apply various of these techniques we talked about to see if we could uh, you know, discover the documents in this database that were related to the scenario and then determine where the deception was in the scenario. And, Sort of unravel what was going on. So, going back to the uh, – this commander's predictive environment, uh, we want to be able to, you know, like say in a military setting, improve the understanding of the operational picture, be able to characterize and predict likely future events in the planning and execution process. So, this is something to supporting the, the commander. Um, and you know, understanding the impact of decisions uh, today, and in order to do all of this, you can't just assume you can take all of the you know information that's coming in through your sensor systems or you know intelligence reports at face value and just fuse the information and act accordingly. You have to actively consider that there's going to be deception and you know trying to deal with that. So currently, I'm working on a, a project with uh, uh, Eugene Santos uh, where we're trying to model an adversary using a Bayesian belief network representation, where we have nodes representing the goals, axioms, beliefs, and actions, both of Well, basically we're modeling the adversary, so sort of the, 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 the red group. And um, we're trying to infer the adversary's intent based on observations. Uh, And this intent can include deception. And we're trying to work up an example for this based on the Korean War and the Chinese intervention in the Korean War. And on the one hand, it doesn't seem like necessarily the best example because um, there was a lot of evidence that the Chinese were going to intervene. They weren't necessarily concealing that, and uh, I I think uh, MacArthur just thought it wasn't worth considering, and everybody sort of deferred to his opinion, and you know the intervention happened. But as we're digging deeper into it, as in all sort of battlefield situations, there's always deception going on. And you know, we think there are more strategic deception in this example that we can work with also. And of course, one reason for looking at the Korean War is it's long enough ago that you know, this is – information is more readily available than, say, something more recent. So, let's see. I think we're sort of drawing close to the closing time. Maybe I should pause and ask if there are any questions at this point. Yes?
1: So, uh, I think a very good uh, social information would be uh, looking at poker games.
0: Yes. It is a right. deception games. <laughs> right. Well, in fact, uh, Whaley, uh, in one of his books he wrote on deception, does talk a lot about games and uh, and, you know, magic tricks and things like that as well is you know, sort of prototypical examples of what he's looking at. Good point. But you have to ask them not
1: to, you know, wear the sunglasses. glasses, If you look at some of the uh, things that you can see on TV, like you see that they're always wearing glasses, they have like big hoods, so it's, you cannot uh, read much of their expressions, for example.
0: Right, right. So so there, there's not many observations you can, you know, see to try to determine intent. Yes? Thank you.
1: Two brief uh, comments. One, uh, it's interesting that uh, you – unless I missed it, uh, you never mentioned uh, the name of Paul Edmund, and I'm happy that you didn't. Right, I
0: think I had facial expressions on one of the slides, but I didn't say yeah, it further. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, and right. uh,
1: that is, of course, a very uh, extended claim. Uh, Frequencies and stuff, and marvelous uh, work has been done. There. All of that uh, hits the semantic barrier that humans detect deception, the deception on the basis of understanding. <coughs> and we have that capability uh, here. The resources developed that serious, uh, uh, thanks to excellent people like Rizner, right. next to Uh We reported that at our end. But um, also in this connection, uh, I don't know what I mentioned it to you. I will uh, talk about it uh, over dinner. I'm uh, consulting for a new um, uh, uh, search engine uh, development called Hakia.com, which is meaning-based oh. and okay. credibility ranking, mm-hmm. independent of uh, uh, Google, or right. But based on pretty much semantic coherence, is built into it. So mm-hmm. I at uh, the um, uh, there is a silent battery release right now, which already outperforms uh, Google 10 to 15 percent in terms of uh, in, uh, performance. But uh, ontological semantics is not hooked up fully really there. In later versions, every uh, uh, single